Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1, as we continue our series entitled Still Joyful. Still Joyful. And I want to encourage you as well in a moment, I want to have you write a sentence down. So if you have something to write with, if you'll pull that out, maybe a piece of paper or part of your bulletin or something, be prepared to write down something in just a moment. Philippians chapter 1. And I want to begin today by saying a name. And I want you to say what comes to mind when I say each name. Okay? You can talk aloud. I know you're not usually supposed to do that, right? You can say amen once in a while. It's all right. But I want to say some names, and I want you to say what comes to mind when I say these names. Are you ready? Tiger Woods. Good. Michael Jordan. Tar Heel, I think somebody said. Okay. Basketball was the majority. This will be an interesting one to see what comes to mind. Bill Gates. All right. I heard computers. I heard money. What else? A billionaire. Somebody said Microsoft. Philanthropist. Okay. Good. Let me say another name. The Apostle Paul. All right, I'm hearing preacher, missionary, joyful, writings. They're all true. But I want to show you today the correct answer is Christ. Christ. We'll see that in a moment. Let me give you one more name. I'm interested if anybody will get this name. Ray Kroc. McDonald's. That's right. Ray Kroc is the founder of McDonald's. All of you have probably taken of his handiwork, but you didn't know maybe who it was. Well, listen, a reporter one time asked Ray Kroc about his priorities. And here's what Ray Kroc said. He said, and I quote, I believe in God, my family and McDonald's. But wait, then he added these words. When I get to the office, I reverse the order. Think about that. He reverses it. Think about that. Beloved, that's one of the great problems that we in the church face today. Believers who want to come to the Lord's house on a Sunday and worship and praise him and rejoice in him. But then on their way out at noontime, they want to leave God at the front door and say, I'll see you next week. The Apostle Paul was very clear about his philosophy of life. In fact, he states it in verse 21. And I want to show you this today. Look at verse 21, a very familiar verse. And that's why I said the correct answer is Christ. All the other things you said are true, and I don't discount those, and we thank God for them. But notice what he says about himself in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, I asked you a moment ago to take out a piece of paper, and if you've done that, I want you to write down these words. I want you to write down this sentence. For me, to live is, and I want you to draw a line. And to die is, draw another line. For me to live is, and draw a blank, a line there. And to die is, draw another line. And I want you to think about that for a moment. The reason I'm having you write it down is because it's, it's good to visualize it and see it. And I want you to look at that sentence and I want you to be honest with yourself. 
If you were to be honest and fill in those blanks, what would you write in those blanks? For me to live is and to die is. How would you answer that? Some folks in our world might write these words for me to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind. Some might write for me to live is fame and to die is to be forgotten. Some might write in those blanks for me to live is power and to die is to relinquish it. Or some may write in those blanks for me to live is my career and to die is to be replaced by someone else. How would you answer that question? What would you write in those blanks? Ken Hughes wrote that among the ruins of ancient Carthage, there's an inscription carved by a Roman soldier. And here's what that Roman soldier carved to laugh. To hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. In other words, for me to live is to hunt, to go to the baths, and to party. He also wrote, according to the tabloids and celebrity magazines, for me to live is to fornicate, to accumulate, and to dine well. On a more prosaic level, for me to live is to golf, to work, to garden, to travel, to watch TV, to ski, to, stop, to shop till I drop. And he says, of course, if this be our life, then death is the loss of everything. Paul said, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul lived a Christ centered, gospel focused life. His philosophy of life was Christ. He wrote elsewhere in Galatians 2.20 these words. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He wrote to the Colossians there in Colossians 3, 4. He said these words, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. For to me to live is Christ. And to die his gain, he would have agreed with Ellicott, who wrote, my body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. My body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. I want to go back and read our text today, beginning at verse 18. And I want to show you three things that are true when Christ is your life. Now, I'll be honest with you. We only have time for the first one today. So we'll reserve number two and three for another time. We're going to look at the first thing that's true about a person whose life is Christ. Look at verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. Help us to be honest 
as the Spirit of God works in our hearts and lives today. Use this preacher for your glory in the Savior's name. Amen. Three things that will be true about a person whose life is Christ. The first thing is this. When Christ is your life, your desire is to magnify him. When Christ is your life, your desire is to magnify him. Now look back at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. That very first word shows us there's a connection here. For I know for... And then he says, I know the word translated know here has the idea of certainty. This shall come to pass. This shall happen. Now, two questions come to mind as I look at verse 19. First of all, what is this there? For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. And the second question is, what does he mean when he says salvation? Well, I believe where it says, for I know that this shall turn. He's referring to what he's already talked about, what he's already written here. This most likely refers back to what we've been talking about in the previous weeks in verses 12 through 18. Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. At this time, many scholars believe he was under house arrest. He was chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Things were not pretty. Things were not easy. Things were not pleasant. But his focus was not on his problems. His focus was on Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. He lived a gospel focused life, as we talked about in our last study. He assures the Philippians that his in, that his incarceration had actually helped to spread the gospel, not hinder the gospel. He says in verse 12, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel is spreading, even though I'm sitting in prison, although I am bound, the gospel's not. And Paul is not moping in his sorrow. He's rejoicing in his savior. We've called this series still joyful. He's in chains, but he's still joyful. His joy is in the Lord. His joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this all happened and shall turn to my salvation. Look again at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of debate, beloved. About what Paul means when he writes salvation. Now we already know that Paul is saved. He knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's going to heaven. He's a child of God. This word here that's translated in our Bible salvation. The Greek word means salvation. It means deliverance. But it also can mean well-being or escape. Now think about where Paul is. He's in prison. Probably under house arrest at this time. He talks about his salvation. MacArthur says there's there's four possible interpretations. Number one, he's talking about his ultimate salvation. That is, he's going to heaven. He will be saved. No matter what happens, he'll be saved. He said, number two, it alludes to his deliverance from the threatened execution. There is that possibility for Paul. He's there. He's awaiting a trial. He could be executed. Third, he said it could mean he would be finally vindicated by the emperor's ruling. In other words, things are going to turn out right. I'm going to be saved in that regard. Or he said, fourth, Paul is talking about his eventual release from prison. I'm going to get out. And there are good men who disagree on which one of those is the interpretation. But I like what he went on to say here. Whatever Paul's precise meaning, he was certain that he'd be freed from his present distress. He would ultimately be saved from this. 
And I want you to notice what he says in that. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Now, watch the next part through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he needed the prayers of the Philippians. And not only their prayers, Paul knew he needed the provision of the Holy Spirit. He was not sufficient within himself. He needed the Lord. He needed the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He needed the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, can I tell you today, the same is true for you and me. We are not sufficient. Not within ourselves. We need the Lord. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, let me encourage you to be praying one for another. He continues here in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation. Now that phrase, earnest expectation in the Greek is very interesting. Here's what scholars tell us it means. It means a keen anticipation of the future. It's like when someone's stretching their neck to see what lies ahead. They tell us in ancient times it was used of a spectator who was watching a sporting event and he sits on the edge of his seat and he stretched his neck to see the outcome of an athletic event. Probably many of us have done that ourselves. That's what he says. According to my earnest expectation, the stretching of the neck, looking and my hope. Now, hope here in the Bible is not like our hope. We say things like, I hope it rains today, or I hope it doesn't rain today. That's not what it's talking about. Hope is that divinely implanted response of the sure promises of God. Certainty based upon God and his word. Now, notice what he says. According to my earnest expectation, this stretching of the neck, my hope, my surety, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. That I shall be ashamed. Paul is in prison. Paul is in chains. Paul is set to defend the faith, according to verse 17. Paul will face trial, but Paul is not ashamed. It's possible to be executed, but he's not ashamed. Why? He had nothing to be ashamed about. First Peter 4.16 says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. It goes on to say, but let him glorify God on this behalf. He wasn't going to be ashamed. He was suffering for Christ. He was going to stand trial for Christ. If he was executed, he'd be executed for Christ. He had nothing to be ashamed about. But he also did not want to be ashamed when he stood at the judgment seat of Christ. When he stood before the Lord, he did not want to be ashamed and hang his head because he was not obedient. He was not faithful. He did not carry out the work God had given him to do. He would instead magnify Christ. Notice what it says in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation, my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Watch this. But that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. That's interesting. With all boldness as always. So now what does it mean? This is the way it's been in my life. This is nothing new. I have stood boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know Paul suffered greatly for Christ. This has been the pattern of his life since he met Jesus Christ. And he says, so now also. In other words, these hardships change nothing for Paul. Why? Because Christ was his life. And he says, I want this to happen. I want Christ to be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In other words, I want to magnify Christ, whether in living or in dying. Now, what does it mean to magnify Christ? What does that mean? Well, 
The word here in the Greek means to be made larger or great to exalt, glorify. And here's the question. How could Paul or we or any human make Jesus larger? Well, we know we can't. He's already large. He's already exalted. He's already Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's already exalted. But we know this. What we're doing is merely showing others his greatness. Warren Wiersbe is an excellent Bible commentator. He wrote these words. Stars are much bigger than the telescope. And yet the telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. The believer's body is to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. To the average person, Christ is a misty figure in history who lived centuries ago. But as the unsaved watch the believer go through a crisis, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. He said the telescope brings distant things closer and the microscope makes tiny things look big. To the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. Other people and other things are far more important. But as the unbeliever watches the Christian go through a crisis experience, he ought to be able to see how big Jesus Christ really is. The believer's life, listen, beloved, the believer's body is a lens that makes a little Christ to this world look very big and a distant Christ come very close. I love that. We're to be a lens Showing others just how large, how great, how exalted, how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is. And notice he says specifically there that Christ will be magnified in my body. Let me ask you a question today, beloved. Don't answer aloud, but ask your own heart. Does God really care about our bodies? We care about our bodies. You've been in the in the. Um, the aisles lately that have the, uh, what do you call them, shampoos and soaps. And have you seen those aisles? Miles and miles, it seems, of things to make our bodies. Things we can change color of hair and add it if it's not there and pluck it if we don't want it. And man, we spend a lot of money on our bodies. We care about our bodies, but does God care about our bodies? I like what Preston Taylor wrote. He said, our physical bodies are valuable and they're up for grabs. He said, medical science has an interest in them. The athletic world appeals for young men to give it their strong bodies. The drug world wants our bodies so that they will become addicted to their products. Style and model salons appeal for our bodies. Even funeral homes advertise for them. They want your bodies. But let me say very clearly today, God wants our bodies. Romans 12, 1 says it this way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says it this way. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, believer. So he's talking to you there, the believer. Which ye have of God, and you're not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We need to be reminded, beloved, that as believers, our bodies are not our own. As believers, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And we're to live holy, acceptable unto God, reasonable unto the Lord, living a life of sacrifice, living sacrifice as Paul did. Guy King said Christ magnified in the body, magnified by lips that bear happy testimony to him. Magnified by hands employed in the service. Magnified by feet only too happy to go on his errands. Magnified by knees bended in prayer. Magnified by shoulders happy to bear one another's burdens. We live in this body. We have these bodies. And God wants us to live in such a way that our bodies bring glory to him. One writer I was reading an excellent little book there talked about it matters to God what we put on our bodies and what we put in our bodies. What we put on our bodies is the manner of dress. The Bible teaches modesty, not calling attention to the body in a way that would cause people to have sinful thoughts or desires. And then what we put in our bodies has the idea of drugs. Not talking about prescription drugs that would harm us. I'm talking about illicit drugs, alcohol, tobacco. Yes, even food. God cares about that. We should have a desire to be the best temples that we can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's convicting, isn't it? I guess we better move on. Paul says, I will not only magnify Christ in my life. But I also magnify him in my death. Look at what it says. Christ should be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Why? Look at the next verse. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, death for the believer is gain. And that seems odd to say. In our world, we ward off death at all costs. But death for the believer is gain. Paul has in mind here the moment of death. Now, the process of death can at times be very, very long. And filled with suffering and sorrow and sickness and hardship. That's not what really he's looking at here. He's talking about the moment of death. In other words, the moment that a person passes from this life to the next next life. Because when a child of God dies, they're with Jesus. He says it here in Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Romans 14, 8 says, for whether we live. We live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I want you to notice something, beloved. Death for the Apostle Paul was not merely an escape. Now, we think about it in that regard. Man, I'm ready to go home to heaven. It's been a rough week. It's been a hard week. I'm tired. We want an escape. But to Paul, it wasn't just an escape, beloved. It was more of Jesus. His life was Jesus. His death would be Jesus. All of it was Jesus. He said, for to me to live. For to me, to me. It's not true of everybody. It's not true of everybody else. It still isn't true of everybody else. But to Paul, it was true. And I wonder, is it true of you, friend? First of all, do you have life? Do you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You've repented of your sin and you've placed your faith in Christ alone. Do you have life? And then if you do, is he your life? 
Pull out that paper you wrote on a moment ago. Those blanks you filled in. What needs to happen in your life so you can truthfully write in those blanks these two words, Christ and gain? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What needs to happen in in your life? Is there some sin that needs to be forsaken and confessed and gotten rid of? Are there some things you're holding on to? Are there some things that you're fighting against? We talked about in Sunday school this morning, the adults did about Jonah running from the will of God. Maybe you're running today. What needs to happen for you to write the words Christ and gain in those blanks? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. George Attlee was killed while serving the Lord uh, with the Central African Mission. There were no witnesses. But the evidence indicates that Atlee was confronted by a band of hostile tribesmen. He was carrying a fully loaded 10-chamber Winchester rifle. And evidence gives us the idea that he had to choose whether to shoot those who were going to attack him and run the risk of negating all the mission work in that area or to not defend himself and be killed. When his body was later found in the stream, it was evident that he had chosen the latter. Nearby lay his rifle, all ten chambers still loaded. He had made the supreme sacrifice, motivated by his burden for lost souls, his unswerving devotion to his Savior. He made the decision that the Apostle Paul had made. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. When Christ is your life, your desire is to magnify Him, to make others see His greatness, His glory, to be a lens that's showing just how wonderful a Savior He is. Your desire is to magnify Him in the way you live. And to magnify him in the way you die. I want to ask you today, beloved, is Christ your life? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our invitation today is very simple. First of all, it's salvation. Those who do not know Christ as Savior, you need to get life. You need to have Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then for those of us who do know the Lord, the invitation today is one of surrender. You know what you wrote in those blanks. You know what you should have written in those blanks. And as God reveals to you today what needs to happen in your life to put the words Christ in gain, I want to encourage you to surrender to his leading in your life today. And come. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We adore and magnify you. You're worthy of all praise. Father, I pray for this invitation. I pray that if there's one or two or many that do not know Christ as Savior, they'll step out here in just a moment and come and talk of someone and Lord, place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then, Lord, for those of us who do know you, 
Oh, Lord, help us. What are in those blanks? I pray, Lord, that you'd work in lives today and show folks what needs to take place to put the word Christ and gain in that sentence in their own lives. I pray they would surrender to your leading in their life. And I pray these things in the Savior's name. Amen.